Beach. <laughs> Are you with us in body but not spirit? Yes, mate. I'm. I'm. Yeah. I'm, many, I'm here. I'm here. How, how much terrible international football have you watched in the last four or five days? Would you say some terrible? Oh, why do I do this job? This <laughs> job. That job. Oh my god, it's been appalling. Did you enjoy Iceland versus England in particular? <laughs> Rubbish. <laughs> what else have you watched? I did Netherlands, Poland. Horse. Football is crap, isn't it? At times, it is rubbish, isn't it? I'm not being awful, but crikey. That England game was appalling. I wish I'd had you for Serbia <sighs> nil, Turkey nil last night. Oh, God, mate. I please don't. Been, uh, please you know, I, I have literally no idea that any of these games have happened. Exactly. Well, you haven't missed anything. You haven't missed anything. For the glory of holiday. <sighs> what were the scores? Netherlands I mean, the... beat Poland 1-0. Italy drew 1-0 with Bosnia. Ooh. England lost, obviously. Well, 1-0. One, one one but nil. shambles. Anyway. <laughs> uh, who are in, are in playing again? Yeah, Denmark. That's a, that's an absolute joke. The Premier League starts in four days. Yes, I know. It's insane. I know. I know. We all know. And the yeah. finals are played after the Euros. <laughs> just before the next competition starts. I'm don't get me going. Don't, don't get me going. Football's bad enough, but this is just compounding my misery. Oh, there we go. We got the, the first smile <laughs> of the morning from Chinch. He, who, as a result of all his travelling, has got a new and persistent cough. <laughs> To be fair, oh dear, Chin, this is the first. Chinch normally on our Zoom calls looks resplendent. Yes, he looks like a picture of health. But I've got to say, he looks a little bit grey and drained. And... He looks a bit like the John Major spitting image puppet. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. That's it. He looks a bit like Ghost Chinch. <laughs> ghost Chinch. As though, uh-huh. though Chinch has died and become. Have you a seen ghost. the? Have you seen the painting? The Turner painting, the Fighting Temeraire. Do you, have uh, you ever heard yes, of it? I've heard of it, yeah. <laughs> Temeraire was this big warship and yeah, it was that, painted yeah. in an ethereal, ghost-like way. I feel like the Temeraire, a you ghost the, of my former self. You are the commentating Temeraire. Yes. That's I've, I've, I've doodled it now, Chinch, and it does conform to the Jack Donaghy rule of art, which is that the only true art are pictures of men on horseback and boats. Like that. Boats, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Got to be a boat. But there's some, there's some glaring, <clears throat> even though it was meant to be uh, his interpretation of it being towed down the Thames to the Breakers Yard, there's, there's some glaring problems with the painting. Uh, see, well, there's, there's two major issues. I don't know whether you want to is guess. This like, is this like an Ed Feynman Sam book where I've got to look at the picture yeah. of Dillis Price and see how it's different? Have a look at the picture <laughs> of the painting and there's two <laughs> glaring, apparently, which Melvin Bragg told me about, which I never saw. There's two glaring errors, apparently. What do you mean Melvin Bragg told you about? Because it was on in our time. The oh, rather than, That's the only rather, way I get my, you know, education that's, that's from. The, the podcast that, uh, the podcast that we will all listen to in 10 years' time. Yes, um, exactly. Yes. It's, not, it's yeah. not just me, is it? That Ch- Chinch did make it sound like Melvin Brad had like, come round to his house <laughs> yes. and talked to him about the fighting terror. No, no, not as well. I felt that he was in my house. You know, even though it was um, on the M6, then the M40, then the M42, then the M25. Mm. Yeah. So I would say the problems with that painting are that it's sunny in London, not accurate. The, the, the sun is, is an issue. And, oh, is it? Is the oh, sun is there a shadowing issue? No. Is the sun is the sun in, in the wrong place? Which means yes, it's the sun going the, wrong can, the, the sun cannot have ever been in that position with the ships in that position, apparently. But again, it's his okay. interpretation. And the it's other just thing what is, Melvin told you. Apparently, the funnel on the tugboat should be in the middle of the tugboat over the boiler, but he moved it so he could get the uh, the image of the Temeraire in behind it. Right. Okay. And apparently, when they did prints of it, 
the guy moved the, the funnel back and Turner was absolutely furious. Like Giles Corrin when people mess about with his coffee. Why mess about with something that's, that he called his darling? Why would you touch it? It's, it's a really a nice painting. painting. It's a beautiful painting, yes. You do look a bit like, you're like it's the commentating Temeraire. Exactly. So you can yeah. see how there's a shape there, but there's no formal content. That is me today. Welcome to Set Piece Menu. There's no formal content. Yes. <laughs> this is Set Piece Menu, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, an effortless nine, Rory Smith, a solid seven, and Andy Hinchcliffe, a proud three. Last time Rory had returned from another country informed us a two lunch final day in Italy. So Rory, is the food for today's episode something that you enjoyed over your first or second lunch during your time in Ireland? I only ate one, one meal at each designated time in Ireland. And in fact, on more than one occasion, we had brunch, which is in fact a reduction of meals in the day because you don't get breakfast or lunch. Uh, so I would say I'm now in negative meal territory, despite having two lunches in Italy. Thank you very much. But we did have a uh, uh, extraordinary fish and chips whilst obviously respecting the Irish government's quarantine guidelines. You do realise that if you have brunch, you're still allowed to have two other meals in the day. Incorrect. That is not how brunch works. Where has it ever been decreed that if you have brunch, you cannot have breakfast or lunch? I think if you have brunch, you can have a small breakfast to to, sort of keep you on, but you can't have brunch and then lunch. That's, That's the road to morbid obesity. You can, have, you can miss breakfast, have brunch, have a late, light lunch, and then a proper dinner, surely. What, well, hang on, what are you doing about your... If you're having a late lunch, when's dinner? Not missing dinner. Early, yeah, no, no, I'm not saying miss it. You have to have it early evening, maybe a little bit later than you would have done otherwise. Well, I know, because I've got a two-year-old, I have dinner, like, like all parents, at 5pm, which is just when I want, just when I want spag ball. The, um, it's five o'clock, but I better have a massive meal. So the, um, the man who once said that he'd quite like to have lasagna for breakfast. What's wrong with spag bol? No, that, was, that, was, that, was that was in a different context, Stephen, which was about the tyranny of Kellogg's. That, that's a <laughs> different argument and is entirely valid. This is exactly the kind of content that we spoke about earlier, and it's also exactly the kind of thing to keep Chinch awake at this dark, dark time. He looks, he looks like that, that, that conversation has just pushed him over the edge. From uh, the ghost of Temeraire <laughs> to the tyranny of Weetabix in about three and a half minutes. Hang on All a I'm Wait. saying, Steve, is why I mean, Weetabix is a separate company. Yes, exactly. why? Why Sorry, do we have to eat just one boring type of stuff at breakfast? Why can't we have lasagna? I mean, it's a valid. It's, it's the sort of thing that people need to think about more. Rory, go to Asia, have rice. There you go. Problem solved. Chinch, the Wait. football is today. <laughs> so I'm not going to get you down another tangent. Chinch, do you know what the football is today? I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> no. I don't. It's not Consider- been uppermost in my mind, but I'm sure it's going to be a riveting subject. Considering he didn't know the start time that he'd basically decreed, and I think it's safe to assume that he's not paid a te- great deal of attention to the, what the subject matter is. No, I, you're right, Steve. There, spot on. This is this is a whole new window into the fury that, that Nicky must have to face more often than we do. Maybe- this, is, this is really rare, though. This is Chinch in a bad mood. I'm not in a bad mood. I'm just exhausted. I'm just tired. We get, well, we're going to I'm test not a bad mood. I'm not, I'm not a bad mood. No, no, no. Just, we're uh, definitely going to test that to its very limits. No, you'll um, be fine. I'll be fine. I'll, I'll tolerate you. Finch, for your purposes and indeed everybody listening, men's league football in England is back en masse from Saturday. A rare example of opening fixture unity forced upon the game, of course, by the pandemic. But how much synergy is there anymore between the Premier League and those divisions that sit below it? 
The idea of a pyramid, you all know, is that the bricks at the pinnacle are supported by those below. They are more numerous, maybe not quite as pretty. Certainly, they are not the ones that draw the eye, but they are absolutely necessary nonetheless for the structure to remain sound. But has the Premier League drifted so far from the Football League that it doesn't need the pyramid anymore? That is to come. You can get in touch with the podcast, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, firstly, can I ask, and, and this will be something that pleases Chinch no end and perhaps might tip him over to the edge into some sort of abyss. Could you please continue to, continue to send in your answers to the Football Fun Soccer Story edition that we had on last week's episode? Because Chinch put in all that work, so damn it, so can you. He set that little quiz based on his soccer stories over the years. We'd like you to email us the answers. Now, we will be giving a shout out to every single person who gets all the questions right, but we've not really had enough to make it anywhere approaching something that merits Chinch's huge preparatory efforts. So please do. Send your answers to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. We've had, we've had a handful, let's put it that way, and they haven't necessarily been the most rigorous in their attempts to answer all those questions correctly. So head back, to ne- uh, head back to last week's episode if you haven't heard that, if you're joining us randomly out of order, and send your answers to Chinch's quiz to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Also, Chinch, if you wouldn't mind sending me the answers so that I know what's right and what's wrong. Uh, I'll have to find the questions first. I-, I will. I'll find them. Don't worry, I'll find them. Uh, On the other hand, you've been very responsive on the name for our manager's most likely to restaurant. It's an idea suggested by Cameron Hill. This is a restaurant where everyone on staff is a Premier League manager and the roles are distributed suitably in the style of the manager most likely to be each one. Uh, We came up last week with Preta Manager when Chinch was sharp as attack. Uh, Twitter liked Tiki Taco. Meanwhile, here is Vishnu Kumaraswamy. Dear Andy, Hugh, Steve and Rory, greetings from Southern India. I discovered Set Piece Menu a little over a year ago and it quickly became an integral part of my podcast schedule. Apart from being an ideal companion while exercising in the urban jungle, no bears around, says Vishnu. Uh, Your lively discussions provided a wonderful soundtrack to many long drives which I had to take for work purposes last year. These drives were between Mumbai and my former employer's factory on the outskirts of Pune, an industrial hub only coincidentally named Chinchwad. It really is named Chinchwad. I leave it to you to decide what it means. I would like to submit my suggestions for the name of the manager-themed restaurant. Presser manager is hard to top, to be honest, he says. Tactics and Tic Tacs is one that he submitted on Twitter. Tarteta, which would be for desserts only. And the Clough Trough or Clough Truff or Clough Truff. Clough Truff. That falls into the Sean Bean <laughs> Uncanny Valley, where it either has to be Sean Bourne or Seen Bean. It can't be both. <laughs> can't be both. Uh, and my personal favourite, says Vishnu, Shanks and Parsley. Uh, thank you once again. Keep up the good work. Best wishes from Vishnu Kumaraswamy. Uh, any further suggestions to the name of our restaurant, and indeed those who work within it, are welcome at setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Is it called Chinchwad because that was the initial investment used as seed funding no no chinch wad is the situation that he finds himself in at the moment working tirelessly day after day covering international nations league football and what he's walking around with in his back pocket as a consequence is his chinch (laughs) (laughs) think about the money is not something that is currently permeating the the, the force field of fury that surrounds chinch at the moment Uh, we should also say we've had quite a lot of people getting in touch about the club man versus one club man conversation that was prompted by an email last week. I am stashing them on a pile, which is getting bigger and bigger, marked next select 11 episode. We will return to that conversation as a result at a later date. Uh, meanwhile, here are a couple of emails sent in uh, response to our last few shows about the Champions League. And this 
from Adam Bremner, who is our Aussie friend on Long Island, about fans and the lack thereof that we discussed last week. Greetings once again from the North Fork of Long Island in month five of our Escape from New York, where the hot dogs continue to be on the grill and are man-sized, the footlong versions that Chinch knows he wants, and where you are all still welcome to visit and host a new New York-based pod anytime you want. We now have a hot tub. So the four of you can pot away in the tub while turning beetroot red like true Brits. But maybe not for the YouTube version. Uh, he has also sent a picture of the scene that he has described. We shall put it on social media because we want everyone to share in our, in our jealousy. Um, Chinch, what did you make of the hot dogs that were on that picture? Uh, I zoomed in on them and they were... <laughs> they were well, you would do, wouldn't you? Because it was a little bit too far away. They were exemplary. They looked to have everything that a good hot dog should have. Enough said. Tremendous hot dogs. 10 out of 10 for hot dogs. And it's, mm. it's led me to this idea, bearing in mind that we're all uh, kind of half at least locked down. Some of us are fully locked down. Um, we are not able to meet each other enough to be able to either eat together or indeed extend this whole idea about us talking about something that we've eaten recently <laughs> in order to make this both football and food. So if anybody has a meal that they would like us to make the food for set piece menu over the course of the next few weeks until we're able to meet again. Uh, would you please send a picture of it to setpiecemenu at gmail.com and we will make the best of them the food for the subsequent episodes of SPM. Um, let's return to Adam, whose uh, picture prompted that idea. Uh, your most recent pod says, Adam, re what we have learned from no fans at the games brought a couple of things to mind. Number one, I think I have a winner for the question I posed to you in pod number 184. Who has the worst fake fan noise? New York City FC played a home game, he says in inverted commas, at their rival's Red Bull Stadium against Columbus two weeks ago. The TV channel piped in fake crowd noise tailored to the game. And yes, they played the Red Bull home team chant, the team that isn't even playing. Ugh he says. And number two, football on TV without real fan noise makes it impossible to multitask while watching and trying to rely on the TV to tell us when mm. to look up from our phone slash devices to see what's happening. It's very similar to the impact of subtitles on watching a movie. As my kids realize, watching Parasite, you can't be on your phone and watch a subtitled movie. In a major change in behavior, they put down their phones and watched. They may be hope for us yet. But while fake fan noise may not work for football, other sports have done it well. The NBA has done a great job, although it may be easier for them given there's plenty of scoring and the sound is pretty one-dimensional. I'm assuming that for cricket, the silence is just part of the usual game, so there's no need for anything. And for Rugby Union, is it piping in grunts or is that Rugby League? Could never tell the difference, says Adam. Until next time, I'm continuing my efforts to control the Bears on Long Island. My efforts have been very successful, none cited for a very long time. Shame the same can't be said about the deer. Uh, that is from Adam. Sounds like you're doing a good job bear-wise. Um, it's a really interesting point on, on not being able to multitask whilst watching football because there's been this whole debate about whether football has been terrible without fans. Maybe one aspect of it is that you do have to watch more of it. So in the bits of the game that are boring, when it's just lots of throw-ins, you'd normally be able to check your phone or, or go and do some, do some ironing or whatever. But you, you feel like you can't now. So you feel as though you do kind of have to pay attention a little bit because you, you aren't getting those, those sort of auditory clues from the, the background noise on the TV. So maybe we're watching more football and in doing so, we see that most of it's quite dull. The, the crowd is a literal soundtrack. I think I might have said it before. If you've got a musical soundtrack for a movie, you are told sometimes how to think, how to feel about the scene that is currently taking place. Those aren't necessarily the best uh, musical soundtracks, but they are doing sometimes uh, what you need them to. Um, 
So that's from Adam, next to another regular correspondent, Alan Shepard, not the astronaut, who says, Gents, thank you as ever for the insightful big picture discussions in the recent Champions League, of the recent Champions League tournament, especially in the context of Pep Guardiola and the discussion of league title versus European success. I've been reminded of the saying of the former Oakland A's general manager, Billy Bean, a.k.a. Brad Pitt in Moneyball, and at least sometime acquaintance of Rory Smith. Uh, in ascending order of importance. <laughs> he would agree with that. Um, and Billy Bean said this, my shit doesn't work in the playoffs. Bean's success was built around maximising fine details and taking advantage of aspects of the game that others were ignoring. Famously, in Moneyball, it was walks. Baseball is essentially a game of individualised matchups. So over a long season, teams should come out ahead by paying attention to these fine details and incremental advantages. But in a playoff system, there's more randomness. You have to come out ahead over five or seven games rather than 162. One unlucky outcome is all it can take to swing a series. If Pep has been hamstrung by bad luck too in the Champions League, a tournament more prone to random occurrences than a league season, perhaps he could console with Mr. Bean. The one difference that I would suggest is that a playoff series in baseball can be heavily influenced by one or two star pitches, something that the A's have never had the luxury of having being a team with limited resources. All the best from outer space, says Alan Shepard, or indeed Fredericton in Atlantic Canada, Alan Shepard. That, that I think is a valid point with the one slight caveat that the, the, the A system was more about building a team and it, yeah, it, it sort of bore fruit over the massive, endless morass of a baseball season. But Guardiola's fame is built on being kind of not just the, the best team builder and the best kind of thinker of his generation is also being the kind of the finest tactician. So in that sense, he should he should be able to to produce in one-off games as well. But yeah, there's, an, there's probably an element of truth in that, that the PEP system bears it, its most obvious fruit over the course of the season rather than, in a, yeah, in a one-off game, whether it's over one leg or two, random stuff can happen, as you saw, certainly against Spurs last year, potentially against Lyon, and, and I would say against Monaco as well, to be honest, in the first one. I think only when Liverpool beat them were they actually well beaten in one of the legs and even then in the second leg they had a legitimate case that if the goal was it Sane's goal had stood just yes. before half time yes then it was that given as an offside yeah. yeah if that goal which was legitimate had stood they would have they would you, you would have expected them to push on and, and, and draw level or certainly Liverpool would have been under a lot more pressure uh, also, I think Alan has just demonstrated that he is part of the mainstream media conspiracy against Manchester City by suggesting that Pep could seek solace in Mr. Bean, clearly referencing yeah. the character played by Rowan Atkinson, who yeah. moved on from Moneyball at that point. This message is from Aaron Lovegrove. Hello, chaps. Hearing of Rory's American exchange student who called Edinburgh E-City because she couldn't pronounce it reminded me of the American inhabitants of the area in and around the enormous US airbase in Ramstein, Germany. The nearest city to Ramstein is Kaiserslautern, home of every right-thinking man's favourite German football team. And of course, the Americans call it K-Town, even though Kaiserslautern is really quite easy to say and bloody great fun too. All the best, Aaron Lovegrove in that London. So there is a precedent to E-Town and it comes... It was E-City. Oh, e e e yes, yeah, sorry, he has said E-City, yes. Which is what also, also what Manchester was called in the 1990s. The, um, <laughs> the, the, um, and did we, we, did, we went through Loughborough as well. We explained the Loughborough thing. Yes, yeah, yeah. Lauberau. Yeah. 
No, just Beth just refused to say it. <laughs> no, I just refused. Just would not, wouldn't say love for it. Just decided it was some sort of test the English had set to take the piss out of Americans. <laughs> and finally, from Buffalo, John Wood. Hello, all. I know that we're all very excited for the return of the SPM PLPL and consequently the return of the Premier League. Again, that might be Rory in descending order importance. Very much so. But I would like to make another suggestion for SPM family engagement, and that is the Fantasy Premier League. We are doing this as a public service announcement. I know that all four of you are far too important and too busy for such trivial pursuits. However, I am sure that there are fellow members of the SPM listening audience who enjoy role-playing as Sean Dyche on the weekend. I thought that this may be another opportunity, along with the SPM PLPL, for this podcast listenership to engage with one another and test our Nostradamus-like abilities to foresee how football matches may play out. Think about it. Literally tens of people could all be competing for the honour of best FPL player who listens to S- who listens to SBM, an honour akin to Chinch's FA Cup winners' medal. I am sure we can all agree. That's what I did. Yes, <laughs> I thought so. I've taken the liberty of creating a league which anyone can join, as this week's pod will be the last one before the start of the new season. If you want minimal effort but maximum pos- podcast li- listenership engagement, then feel free to share out the code to join the league. So everybody, pens at the ready. It's just six letters. You'll be able to manage it. Uh, all lowercase N W R. H-R-B. That's N-W-R-H-R-B, all lowercase. That is your league code. Thank you to John, who says, all the best from Liverpool, uh, and sadly not Huntington Beach, California, where our other John Wood is from. So that code is N-W-R-H-R-B. If you're a fancy Premier League player, and that's the last time we'll mention it, we will put it onto social media, though. And at the end of the season, just like SPM, PLPL, we'll anoint a winner and give them no prize of any consequence. Uh, correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. And yes, SPM, PLPL details to come shortly. Unless, Chinch, you want to conjure up a soccer story that you want to tell us today, you know, that you've planned. Uh, no, I'd rather not if that's okay. This is a man who is not committed to this hour of, of podcast. I'm chat. listening. I'm enjoying. I'm enjoying listening, just like all our listeners are. So maybe this is where I just take a back seat, lie down, and listen. So it's 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 interesting, informative stuff. So crack on. He's not been listening. He's not been informative. <laughs> you might as well just go the whole hog and put a face mask on. <laughs> Avocado one, Steve. Is it a fruit or a vegetable though? It's a, it's a vegetable. <laughs> it is definitely. Between now and that big moment of the SPM PLPL reveal, you have the inconvenience, Chinch, and indeed our listeners, of having to pay attention to some content. Uh, now, football, like almost everything, has been buffeted between the waves of the coronavirus pandemic, desperately trying to find a way to sustain itself and provide those that follow the sport with a brand of entertainment that is recognisable as being hot soccer. We are sufficiently through that particular storm to be welcoming the start of the English League season 2020-21 with no guarantee that that storm will not rage again but still on Saturday this week there will be a rare synergy all the divisions starting on the same day but has COVID-19 driven the biggest wedge yet between the Premier League and EFL how the likes of Liverpool and Manchester City cope without fans has as we discussed last week become a debate that has almost run its course they had the final handful of games of last season to experience it and acclimatize to it too but what about the likes of Accrington and Barrow at the other end of that football pyramid. Indeed, all the teams in the bottom two divisions, they decided that even to conclude last season under those restrictions would not be economically viable. And yet, here we are about to start a new one with the same circumstances, at least until the beginning of October, when who knows how many paying customers will be allowed in, if any. If these particular ships are not sailed safely to shore, then some of those foundational bricks of the football pyramid will surely crumble. 
But is football formed in that way anymore? Does the Premier League actually need Leagues 1 and 2 to be there and functioning successfully? Would it make any difference to the elite game if they simply disappeared? So is football really a pyramid if the Premier League doesn't need the lower leagues? And how much has that structure been undermined heading into the new season? So as the person who suggested this, can I, can I just make, can I get a sort of necessary caveat in early doors? And then if do. I change, I'll shut up. The pyramid is a good thing. We like the pyramids. We like all of the lovely, heartwarming lower league clubs. Some of them managed by really, really bright, inventive people. Some of them managed by really surly and slightly unnecessarily aggressive men. So, some of them well run, some of them badly run. All of them important community assets in their way, even if they're not used as that. Nobody is saying that we should abolish the pyramid or that we should kind of close down every club below the championship. But I think there is, an, there is a really interesting conversation to be had. And I, I can't remember how it, how it was put to me initially or who did it. I think it, was, I think it may have been on Twitter, but I'm not sure, that the Premier League needs the pyramid. And I don't think that's true. I think it's great that there is a pyramid and I think we should protect it at all costs. But I don't think there's an argument in its favour that the Premier League needs it. I think if we abolished Leeds 1 and League 2, nothing would really happen to the Premier League. It would not have a negative impact on the Premier League at all. Which is, and I cannot stress this enough, not me saying we should do it. Is that clear? Am I right? You've made that very clear. And yeah, I'm right. glad that you did it right at the top as well. It's a really emotive subject. And people take any... There's this kind of orthodoxy amongst football fans that if, that if you're a proper football fan, you really cherish the lower league clubs, and to the extent that within that weird hierarchy of fans that we kind of occasionally allude to, that, that being a fan of a lower league club is in some way more legitimate than being a fan of a, of a Premier League club, which is why in the media you're allowed to say, oh, I'm a devoted fan of, of Wickham or of Leighton Orient or whoever, but you're not really, you're not in, it's discouraged to say, oh, you know, I'm an, I'm an ardent Manchester United fan. That's, that's bad because it biases you, but if you're an ardent Leighton Orient fan, it kind of burnishes your credentials. And I think that the, the, because of that kind of, what's the word, pedestal that it's put on, any kind of, any, anything saying maybe this thing is not the absolute lifeblood of English football or the, the best thing about English football is, is seen as a real heresy. And it's really important to say that we're not saying get rid of it or this, this is not a conversation about yeah, get, getting rid of it or, or abolishing it or, or saying it's bad because it's not, it's all great, we love it, it's brilliant. Can't, can't have too many Wickhams, but Wickham Wanderers, Connor Wickham, they're all important. <laughs> but the, um, I think the idea that, that it, it, it some way feeds the roots of the Premier League is, is probably wrong. So, so what, what is the assumption that has been made that we are saying has, has had a light shone upon it to the extent that perhaps it isn't true anymore? Because there are so many, so many assumptions in, in football, particularly um, generational ones that, that actually after a while you start to realise aren't true anymore. So even though we want the pyramid to be there and, and the, the, the questions that I pose at the top of any show are often rhetorical and not necessarily uh, ones that uh, show show exactly how we feel or, or what we want to happen but what has been the prompting for this right now to be a question that we are now asking well because there's a genuine existential threat to leagues one and two because as you said right at the start that of this bit that they didn't finish their seasons because it was deemed economically unviable which was legitimate and yet they are now having to start their seasons 
in exactly the same conditions. There's still no fans. There's still no extra money from TV or anything like that. The Premier League have given them some money, but only an advance on next year's money, which means there's still a great big black hole awaiting them at some point. And we, as much as we're not really talking about it anymore in terms of the Premier League, there is still this possibility that we all get locked down again. That if case rates start growing before vaccines or cures or whatever are available, then, then everything's getting cancelled again. So there is a, a possibility that in the months and probably years ahead, we lose League One and League Two clubs. Not all of them, but some of them. And that has been presented, as it always is, whenever League One and League Two are mentioned, as though without them, all of English football suffers. Now, yeah, to make it plain again, there is no question that if League One and League Two clubs go bust or cease to exist in whatever form, then the towns in which they're based suffer because they are hugely important community assets. Their fans suffer because they are a central part of their lives. Football suffers because part of its appeal is, is in its richness and its variety. All of that is true. But I don't think that if Crawley go bust, West Ham will suddenly be like, oh God, I don't know if anyone will come now because no one will want to watch us because Crawley aren't playing. I don't think it works like that. I, think that. I don't even know if that's ever been true. I don't think that's ever been true. I think it's just something we tell ourselves. Um, so what we, what we should probably say is set, set ourselves up to be able to discuss both both points of view, i.e., yes, we understand that the, 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 the pyramid is something that we think is, is beneficial to football, but we should say what, what are the likely consequences of that pyramid being deconstructed and what are the benefits to some clubs or what are the fears uh, thereafter? We, we, had a, we had a conversation, didn't we, about when, when Berry went bust, that how, how football can sustain the 92. So... That was in a pre-COVID time. We are, we are now going to have a conversation where having spoken about how important it is for the lifeblood of the communities and for those fans who support those teams, that, that it is absolutely vital that these clubs continue to have a place in the Football League pyramid. So if we kind of accept that, now that we think that it's more likely that, that clubs might go the way of Bury, and we accept that that will be terrible for the local community and for, for all those fans, when we take that as a given, how much do, does the Premier League care about that? And how much is the Premier League potentially able to do anything to stop it from happening rather than just give an advance on money that was, that was due to them anyway in the future? To repeat something I have said previously, when this sort of came up towards the end of another episode, it might even have been the one about restructuring leagues one and two. We can maybe get onto the, the viability again of the pyramid shortly. But I think the, the one major benefit that say leagues one and two and you can keep going further down the pyramid than that as well has two premier league clubs is that not everybody can be an elite footballer lots of people are given the belief that they can or will become an elite footballer but they they can't all so clubs further down the structure give those players who don't quite make it at the very top level a career a livelihood, a life in football that they otherwise wouldn't have if those sorts of clubs didn't exist, which enables the big clubs at the top of the tree to have their large academies to stockpile players because those players who might have far-reaching ambitions at least know that there are fallback options. Football does this, but other sports even more so. Look at ways in which they can drive up participation. They are desperate to get to the level 
of football in terms of young kids aspiring to play the sport. And there are all sorts of community outreach programmes to try and find talented young cricketers or golfers from the sort of backgrounds that, that players in those sports don't traditionally come from. So why would football want to go the way in which career opportunities for young footballers become restricted because clubs in leagues one and two are allowed to fade away in great numbers. Yes, we can survive the loss of one or two clubs and the viability of the 92 that we seem to so be so determined to preserve is under greater scrutiny than ever. But we can't just have elite football. Like you can't just have elite anything in life because not everybody makes it at elite level. They have to have somewhere to go. Otherwise, how are you going to persuade young people that there is a potential career for them if they dedicate themselves to this path? That's a, that's a really good point. And that, that, is, defi- that is definitely something that the, that the lower leagues do provide the Premier League with, in a, even if it feels in a some, some way intangible. But the, the drawback with it is that, or at least intangible to the Premier League, I don't, I don't, I don't think the Premier League sees it like that. I don't, I, I'm not sure that they are quite as sophisticated in their thinking as, as Steve is. But I don't know. Do you think that if, if say, say you lost 20 clubs, say, say you lost 20 professional clubs in Britain, in England, would fewer people want to be footballers? I don't know. I think it'd be the same. I, I don't think it'd make any difference. I think that, that they become the fallback options when you don't make it in the Premier League. But I don't think they'd stop the intake. Well, the, the potential benefit of it would be, responding to Rory's point, is that you might end up with a greater spread of aspiring young footballers at the top clubs rather than being, a, rather than them being able to be hoarded by one or two of the very biggest academies mm. because those clubs would no longer be able to persuade the parents of those young footballers that they can turn them into professionals. If they saw a bottleneck in certain areas, they would be more likely to say, do you know what, I'm going to take them to the mid-ranking Premier League club that's interested in them instead, or the championship club, where they will at least get the opportunity to play first-team football rather than this sort of win-or-bust mentality maybe of of being at a Chelsea or a Manchester City. Yeah, it's, it's not perfect. And you'd like to think that you know, in term, it wouldn't, it's not just players that would filter down, that a greater amount of the money would filter down. Because a lot of these smaller clubs do have really big fan bases. Thousands of people go and watch them or, or follow their fortunes on social media or on what little television coverage that they do get. That they are massive community assets. And you, you, there's all sorts of things in our in our locality that we fight to preserve and football clubs certainly should be very near the top of the tree for all the good all of the good that they do well um, yeah absolutely absolutely but it's just whether it it's and that's not really that's not really up for debate i don't, I don't think there's any kind of there's not there's no convincing counter argument to no. to the idea that we should prote- protect football clubs and that to an extent maybe what what's necessary is they should be taken into some form of ownership low as Lower down, maybe not quite League One. There's still, you know, there's a lot. Of, there's Portsmouth and Sunderland in League One. They're big clubs. You couldn't really have fan ownership of them. And fan ownership actually isn't. It works in Germany because it's always been the case in Germany for most clubs. It, I, I think imposing fan ownership is much more complicated than people pretend it is. But you do wonder whether a lot of clubs in like League Two could 
could probably be financed as effectively if they were run basically as cooperatives than like John Lewis, rather than um, as businesses. They, they maybe don't need to function as businesses quite in the way that they do. They could still maintain their professional status, but equally the kind of written into the, the covenant of being a football club is the right to dream. And that's why that in League Two, there will be clubs who, who see, see a pathway through to maybe not the Premier League quite, but certainly the Championship. And they think, well, once we're in the Championship, who knows? Like Brentford almost got to the Premier League. You never know. It could happen to Exeter. It could happen to Accrington. It could, you know, it could Well, it happened to Bournemouth. It happened to Bournemouth. You know, it happened to lots of teams who, who, who are right there. It happened to Wigan. But you're right that there is, a, yes, there's a structure. There's a, an, a literal structure of, of football in England. But there's also that ambition structure. You have the opportunity, unlike elite sports, particularly in, in the States where they have an elite ban and that's it. They don't really have a, a feeder system outside of the college system. They, they have an elite level. And, and the NFL, which is, something that I kind of bang on about all the time, which everybody knows, but they, they are struggling to try and find some sort of subsidiary somewhere to try and get jobs for people who essentially don't have jobs because they're either playing for an NFL team and, as Stephen uh, jokes quite a lot, you don't necessarily have a myriad jobs if you're a member of an NFL uh, roster. You just kind of do one thing. And so if you don't have a place on one of those 32 rosters, you don't have a job. So they're trying to set up all sorts of other leagues. Some have the NFL's blessing, some don't, just to get these guys some jobs. They want to dream of playing in the elite level of their sport. And they, to do that, they have to play somewhere to illustrate their capabilities. I'm not going to tap on the goldfish bowl that, that houses our former England international just to, to, to see if he's still with us. And Chinch, you came through an academy of a big club. You came through the apprenticeship at Manchester City and you were then very fortunate to be able to play at the elite level throughout your career until you got relegated to Sheffield Wednesday. And so there, there are clearly those that you will have come across, even if it wasn't you yourself, who appreciated the opportunity not only to play football professionally, even if it was outside the top division or the top two divisions, but also those people who would have played outside the top two divisions, shown how good they were and risen up the leagues to be able to play for a Premier League side. Yeah, I, I, it's an interesting point. It's something I've never really thought about in terms of the players and the opportunity for players to play somewhere and for clubs to provide that opportunity for them. But I, I just look at that there is no, clearly no footballing connection between the Premier League and, say, League Two. There isn't. League Two doesn't really do anything for the Premier League. And I'm, I'm not sure it ever really has done. Just because we've had the, the COVID crisis and people are talking about finances and what can the Premier League do for the lower league clubs. I, I, don't, I don't feel that the Premier League have ever really thought that deeply. And think, well, it's not maybe our responsibility to keep those clubs alive. But keeping those clubs alive for the sense of community and the opportunity it gives for young players to play football, to get a start somewhere, is, is hugely important. I just wonder whether, of course, with fans not coming into, into grounds, financially that is a, a huge burden on all those League One and League Two clubs, but whether they were to a section of the clubs maybe go amateur again, just to keep the clubs alive, just to again service that role that the community really needs, because that's where I feel the the biggest loss will be if these clubs go under. Is what happens to the communities around them? And people at Wigan have talked about this. They weren't talking about the football club and where they've been and they've won the FA Cup. They were saying if Wigan goes out of business, what it does for the Wigan community 
And that's what I feel is so important. I think it probably really kicks in as, it, as you drop down out of the championship. But, you know, clubs like Wickham and Rotherham going up into the, into the championship, that's the same is true for them because you never know where they might be in five years. I'm sure they won't be probably be in the Premier League. They might well be down in Leagues 1 and 2 again. So keeping these clubs alive, how we keep these clubs alive is one thing. Whether we feel it's the Premier League's duty financially to support these clubs I think there'd have to be a, a, a shift of mindset for the Premier League clubs to actually do that because I'm, I'm not sure it's even in their in their remits. They're not being necessarily selfish. They're just, again, as we said about West Ham worrying about Crawley going out of business. Is that a huge criticism? Or they've got their own business to look after and think, well, is it our duty then to, to provide service and keep other clubs alive? Is that part of our role? Because if we're not in the, in the Premier League, if we're a championship club, is there an obligation on, a say, a wealthy championship club to provide help to, to the, the teams in League One and Two as well. You know, where, where do you actually draw the line and say, well, okay, teams above that line have to do more financially to keep the other clubs afloat? We often talk about how the job as a footballer is still a job, even though it might be a bit of a rarefied uh, world in which they ply their trade. But Chinch, do you think that there is a responsibility of football clubs to stay in business, to continue to employ people who are footballers? Because like I said, in the NFL, if you're not in one of those, let's, let's say the Premier League and the Championship is 44 teams. If you, if you were to get rid of Leagues 1 and 2 and you, you didn't have a job in one of those squads in those top 44 clubs, that's it. You don't have a job. You go off and learn to do something else or apply your trade in a different industry. Do you think there is a responsibility to try and keep League One and League Two clubs going for the, for the jobs that they provide. Footballers now appreciate that there are jobs everywhere else in the structure of that club, which are yeah, also exactly, important. Yeah. But I'm just talking specifically about giving young people an opportunity to have a job playing a footballer. Is there, is, is there no, yeah, no responsibility on those clubs, obligation on those clubs to be, to, to be there to do that specifically? It's, it's maybe something those clubs haven't really thought about until now, until the, the possibility of them going out of business is, 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 is one that could could actually happen. Then they start to think about the people who work for the club, the footballers who play for the club, what they do for the community. And that's why I think there's such a, a worry here. It's not just saying, well, we're not going to see that team play football anymore. And there's a lack of opportunity for footballers to play for their local club. It, it is incredibly worrying. And I, I just think they're taking on that added responsibility saying, well, you know, the footballers are all part of our employees at the club. The footballers, I, I don't know how much in terms of the employees, how much footballers would take up of, of a club's employee base. Is it 50%? Is it, is it more than that? Or there are more people working in the outside around a club than the actual playing staff? So again, you can't just say that it's, you know, they've got to be concerned about the, the playing staff. They've got to be concerned about everybody who's involved in, in working for that club as well. But it's, yeah, I think that responsibility towards their players is something that has been brought home because they want to continue to do what they've always done. And they've been able to do that because the money has been flowing. Again, maybe the clubs haven't been run completely correctly. And this has really caught out a lot of clubs that they haven't been balancing the books and their wages have been too high in terms of, of the revenues that are coming in. But again, it's just really kind of it's taken everything away. It's pared everything down to make the clubs realise the responsibilities they have to so many different areas of their club that maybe they didn't fully appreciate when the money was flowing. I think you have to maybe separate duty from desire almost so it's it's obviously desirable that that all of the that we have as many clubs as possible that all of those small towns that by and large make up leagues one league two and to an extent the championship they all have that that kind of outward facing public body that represents them so if you think about wigan in the national discourse or crawley or rotherham 
you you never hear about you might get a crime in one of them at some point where they make the news because of some horrific horrific incident but other than that they they have no real kind of national brand except when their straws are read out on 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 a saturday afternoon that is the way that and that was what struck me in berry that that's why people have heard of berry because the football team in berry that's that that is who's heard of berry is the people who follow football and guy garvey's from berry and Guy Garvey is from Bury, so you know Guy Garvey and the football team. But it's the, that's the same in all those little towns. That you know Harrogate, which is my my localish club, although I've always been uh, Harrogate Railway till I die, so I'm gutted that town have gone up. But Harrogate kind of has a brand that exists outside football. People have heard of Harrogate. It's the nice place in the north. It's it's actually in the south, but it does. It's too nice to be in the north. It, it does spring water. There's a baths. It's you know it's, it's they posh. serve tea in proper china cups. They serve, there's a Betty's. What more do you want? The that's Harrods brand. But most towns aren't like that. Most towns don't have that same. Barnsley doesn't really have that. There's not there's no there's no way in which Barnsley presents its face to the world other than through its football team. That is what Barnsley. The Hinchcliffe's came from Barnsley. Everybody knows Barnsley through the Hinchcliffe lineage. The, well, you do drive through Barn, Barnsley and there are a lot of Hinchcliffe streets, Hinchcliffe avenues, Hinchcliffe mm. road. It's, you can't move to the Hinchcliffe as the, Absolutely. As the former robber barons of the city. It's, and the road um, signs are enormous with the length of my name. It's terrible. <laughs> I mean, pa- Parkinson, Dickie Bird, Mick McCarthy, they've all done their bit to try and take on that responsibility of being sons of Barnsley, but it's, it's almost impossible. <laughs> I, I feel they've dragged them down and I've tried to lift them up, Steve. I think that's, did, that's the way I look at it. Did Mick McCarthy know that you were from Barnsley originally and that's he why he annoyed you? He didn't remember me cleaning his boots. How is he <laughs> going to remember that we're both... I didn't even... I was going to mention it if he'd have said, yeah, you did a great job on my boot. I would have said, and, we're, and our fa- my family's from Barnsley as well, Mick, and that would have been lifelong friends, but I couldn't go down that road when he said, I can't remember you cleaning my boots. I was, you know, I was a, a lame duck. The, I now regret picking Barnsley as an, as an example. You should but do. It's a disgrace. That's really important to those, to those places to have that, that public-facing thing. It's brand recognition. Brand recognition. National brand recognition. Again, there's, the community work the clubs do, really important. The fact they provide jobs for footballers and non-footballers, really important. The fact that they, they give a, a, a way of expressing identity to a town, really important. It's, it's crucial that we retain as many of those clubs as possible, hopefully all of them, with any luck, there'll be governmental support or there won't be a second wave or whatever. If you and switch to am- amateur status, would that make any difference financially to the clubs or not? It doesn't, well, it, 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 it depends. A lot of amateur clubs say that the, the, well, it depends what you define by amateur. If they're not paying anybody at all, then yeah, then obviously it helps because they're getting money in from gate receipts without to pay anybody. If you go semi-pro, it can be, it's a bit more complicated because you, you do often have to, your crowds drop, but also your outgoings remain to some extent, constantly sort of, sort of pay people, and there's all the administration stuff that, that keeps the club going, costs money. So that's not necessarily a kind of panacea for it. Um, but also, I think what Hugh said about the, the sort of the hierarchy of ambition that you have a right to dream. If you go amateur or semi pro, you are giving that up, and that's a lot for a club to, to do. And it would widen the gap between the haves and the have nots, that, that that kind of schism between the rich and the poor in football would get much worse. And you'd be accepting it. You'd be saying, right, we've, we've been beaten. There's so much money in the Premier League now that we can't. Do hope to keep up or even kind of play the same sport that but that's all kind of what we would like that's what that's all stuff that we want to to retain i think duty is different i don't know if the clubs do have a duty to provide jobs for footballers any more than any business has a duty to provide jobs for its employee its employees so if if the business is no longer viable then the the employees have to get jobs elsewhere and it's this isn't isn't a perfect parallel but you think about local newspapers 
which are also community assets and are cr do crucial work in in kind of holding that community to scrutiny and, and highlighting its, its, its flaws and its benefits they have proved in recent years not to be particularly viable businesses in some cases and have had to shed workers and in some cases close so th they haven't been afforded that protection and yet they do some some of the things that a football team does in terms of in terms of kind of representing a focal point for a community so there is i don't know if they have a duty to provide employment if they can't finance that employment it's that's a really difficult subject but the other thing is that i think is really important is there is this belief this again orthodoxy that because there is more money in the premier league that has worsened the amount of money available to League Two clubs. Now it's probably worse, it definitely worse than how much League Two clubs have to pay their players because it's dragged everybody upwards. But I would, I would guess to be honest that League Two clubs potentially have benefited from the massive interest in football that has been driven by the Premier League. So because there, there is lots of money in the Premier League, we look at the Premier League and say they have a duty to keep those clubs afloat. And I think, it'd be, personally, I would love to see the Premier League donate, give more money to the grassroots to keep them going. I think that, that's, that's an obvious thing to do. But at the same time, the Premier League probably has a right to think, well, actually, we, we are, you know, the, this rising tide has lifted all of you. And there is an unfortunate corollary to that, which is that the wages have gone up. But so, so has interest and attendance and sponsorship revenue and the, the kind of value of being attached to a, a football team, whether it's or even the idea of football as a way of kind of investing in, in, in advertising or, or marketing or whatever, that has lifted everybody. So whether there's a duty on the Premier League to sort the financial problems out lower down, I, I don't know. Does, does Sainsbury's have a duty to save your local corner shop? I don't know if they do. Much excellent stuff has been said, particularly by Rory and Chinch. Uh, I, I can't keep up with all of it, but I do think there's a couple of important points that have been raised and they all effectively come back to the same thing, that it's not the Premier League's responsibility, much as idealistically we would love to see the money dropping down. It is very much the EFL's responsibility to preserve these community assets and to come up, if, if they are to survive, to come up with a solution to the financial issues that they are clearly have been having and that will now become exacerbated in this sort of hopefully soon to be post-COVID world, but it's not going to make their life any easier. And, and the way that they're funded needs more scrutiny. The way that they are run needs more scrutiny there perhaps needs to be some sort of covenant some guidelines that, that have to be adhered to strictly to make sure that these clubs continue to be that provide that pride for a community that otherwise doesn't have a profile and Rory struck on something really interesting about you know names of these places being read out on the radio I made that very argument when I worked in local radio and we used to read out the sort of the local non-league scores and there was some suggestion that we shouldn't do that anymore and one of the things I said at the time was a lot of these places it's the only time that their town is mentioned on the local radio station that is supposed to serve them each week is a just after five o'clock on a Saturday afternoon when we do the non-league football scores. And surely that's, that's a good thing. But we have to accept that we live in a world where the, although that rising tide thing that Rory talked about is absolutely correct, and maybe if you can't get a ticket for a Premier League game, you might go and see your local club in Leagues 1 or Leagues 2 instead, and that is a brilliant thing. 
the Premier League and League Two are very, very different beasts. And they can't operate in, uh, they can't even operate in a, in a micro financial climate that the Premier League do. They have to accept that, that there, are, there, there are differences to the way that they, they generate their income and therefore how they can facilitate their outgoings. It'll be really interesting to see how the salary cap works in Leagues 1 and Leagues 2 this season and whether or not they're, that can sort of be manifested into something by which, because I know like the likes of Portsmouth and Sunderland who generate a lot of revenue compared to the smaller clubs are not exactly delighted that they are having to operate by the same salary cap as Fleetwood or Accrington might have to. But you know what? More for them for being run so badly that they dropped down to that level. You know, you can't, you can't say, well, we generate loads of money. We shouldn't be tied by the rules of other clubs in this division. Well, the way that Why your club was run is the reason you ended up in that division in the first place. So now those are the parameters you will have to operate by until you can get yourself organised to get back up. But in the same way as Tom Cruise gets £20 million for appearing in a, in a movie, the guy who he punches in the face at the very beginning of it doesn't get 5 or £10 million just because he's in the same movie. And we cannot continue to live in a world in which we have this situation of League One and League Two clubs being so aspirational that they are throwing the kind of money at players with the ideology that that is going to help catapult them up the, the divisions and into the, the top of the championship or the Premier League and, and, and the revenue that that provides. Because football's too random for that. So greater control, under, uh, uh, greater control over finances needs to be exercised if we are going to have that thing that we want of, of preserving these assets. There is one aspect, I think, of, of the existence of League One and League Two, that, that, of the pyramid, that is really important to the Premier League, and that's in the, in the flow of money. Because a lot of Premier League teams, not just in, the, in terms of the academy, but in terms of their transfer strategies, will, will look at the ability to sell on players as a way of generating income. And, bal and balancing the books effectively. And I think you do need that. The Premier League teams need to be able to sell to the Championship the players they don't want, effectively, or the lower half of the Premier League. You know, the top half of the Premier League needs to be able to sell to the bottom half of the Premier League. The bottom half of the Premier League needs to be able to sell to the Championship. The Championship needs to be able to sell to League One and League Two. If the clubs that constitute the buying market of the Premier League didn't have their own selling market, then the Premier League would suffer. That is, that's one direct impact that I think is really important. That that's how they fund their academies, ultimately, yeah, Rory, isn't it? It's by selling 10 players to League One clubs for 350 grand and suddenly you pay for your academy for a year. And, and that, that, is, that is how that kind of keeps financing football as a whole. It's, and it's, why, it's funny, it's why the standard in League One and League Two is better now than it has been. Chinch won't agree because he, um, he's watched too much football recently. But... If you look at the technical standard in League One and League Two, it's much better than it used to be. And it's just a lot of them are, are kids who've been sold for a couple of hundred grand from a Premier League academy. But that money has kept the Premier League academies going. And it doesn't matter. There's, there's always going to be somebody who's willing to come in and throw money at a, a situation. I was talking to somebody from a, a Tier 9 club. as uh, I did the, uh, the FA Cup Extra preliminary round of the, the BBC on the red button the other week. And I was speaking to someone from big up AFC Sudbury down on the Sussex, uh, Suffolk-Essex uh, border. And they, they'd worked really hard to get an academy in place to get their, their team upwardly mobile. And the manager of the club was saying, problem is, is that our opening game of the league season is against a team co-owned by Ollie Murs. And they're just throwing a load of money about. So it doesn't matter what level of football you're at, there is always going to be somebody who is willing to chance their arm with a bit of money. 
And that's possibly the thing that needs to be curbed. Otherwise, some teams will be obliterated whilst others might have that boom, but there could be a bust around the corner. That is the dark side of that, that ambition structure coin, isn't it? I just want, want to, to finish. We've talked about everything apart from at, at actually football and, and what we're going to see on the pitch, because clearly we are going to start a new season on Saturday. So is there a benefit to this pyramid that football is supposedly constructed in, in, in England in seeing some of the, the, the way that football is now played in the Premier League to a certain degree, the pervading sense of how progressive football has, has kind of taken root in the Premier League and how that now feeds down, not only in terms of it being a fad or a style that others want to copy, but also because of the nature of the generations who are coming up in terms of coaches and that, that, that that's how they want to play, but also players because they have been schooled that way, whether they've come from the, uh, the academies of a high league club or indeed that's just the way that football is being played at, at the moment. So, the, the kind of football that we now see at the levels of League One and League Two, is that, quote, better, unquote, football than, than perhaps it used to be? Chinch, have you, have you, have you got any sense that, the, that the, football, the football in the lower leagues is of better quality because of how the Premier League is playing football and how those players then start to filter down, how the coaching expertise starts to filter down, and that there is a genuine connect between the Premier League and the lower leagues because of that? Yeah, I'd, I'd probably say that is true. I also feel the, the state of the pitches. If you look at pitches now, leagues one and two, they're usually, apart from maybe Accrington, are absolutely immaculate. So it encourages you to play football on the ground. But I think, yeah, it's maybe the way, you know, tactically the way football has gone, the way, the pure, not necessarily the, the, the purists' uh, way of playing the game, but it, it does seem to be there is more football players about the technical side of it, whether it be the Premier League or League Two. They are, there's no teams kicking it in the corners and, and doing all that type of stuff. It does seem to be, not every team plays out from the bat, but they do try and get the ball down and play. So I do feel that has maybe come from the way that football has changed, the influence of the Premier League, but also the pitches. I just think the pitches are now far, far better than they were 10, 15 years ago. So they really do encourage teams to play and also as you say the coaches that are actually now coaching the teams on these pitches are used to playing passing football so that's maybe why that's that's filtered down to that level and does that reflect then in in terms of the players that have grown up perhaps in the structure further down that actually if they do make it into the premier league they're more likely to have a home in a system a playing system Mm -hmm. that suits them and so the, the premier league has actually benefited in in the inverse as well i just wonder how many how many players can we think of? You, you don't normally jump from League Two to the Premier League. It tends to be the clubs get promoted, the players maybe move on after that happens as well. You don't see players, because I, I think those players normally would have been picked up, uh, as Steve said, as, as Premier League clubs tend to kind of get a, a kind of influx of all these young players and kind of um, stockpile them. You probably see that happening. You wouldn't see players, I think, jumping from the... I just can't remember anybody. Can you remember anybody who's jumped from League Two into the Premier League and been... Reason because it doesn't work that way. It doesn't no, work. They might that have way. done it incrementally with yeah, exactly. staying at that club that has got promoted. Yeah, there's there's a reason maybe why these lads are playing in League Two at the age that they are, and they're not maybe involved with the Premier League clubs, or they have been involved with the Premier League clubs. They leave to get regular football, and then maybe as their clubs move forward, they would probably move up the up the chain as well. Again, like you say, prove themselves in league after league. But I just feel that the football, the style of football played in League Two to say the championship in the Premier League is not a million miles away. It's just the actual quality of it. Because again, the quality of the players is slightly different. But if they're being encouraged to play in the right way, a Premier League in inverted commas way of playing, then if, if and when their clubs get to the Premier League um, or they as individuals do, then they're, they're in a, a decent position to be able to, to survive at the highest level. 
So have, have we come to the conclusion that even though the Premier League is indeed drifting further, potentially away from the, the, the lower echelons of the EFL because of COVID enhancing that gap financially, that perhaps footballing-wise, there is more of a thematic consistency than perhaps there ever has been before? I would say so, yeah. I think that, the, that more of the ideas in, in the lower leagues come directly from the Premier League and are interpreted for, the, for, the, for their surroundings than, than, than they used to be. It's, the, league One and League Two are not quite the leagues that you know, Wickham got promoted obviously from League One last year, but were very much the kind of an outlier in terms of how they used the ball and, and what they did. They're, they're a much more traditional kind of English football inside. There's a, there's a lot of quite sophisticated teams down there. Which is one way that the that League One and League Two massively benefit from the from the existence and success of the Premier League, which is that kind of access to to best practice, I suppose. Whether you can make an argument that the Premier League needs League Two and League, League One and League Two because they then provide a, a a hunting ground for players, I think you have seen in recent years more players come through that route than previously, which is slightly counterintuitive. But equally, I don't think if, it, if that route was stopped, that, that the Premier League would, would noticeably suffer for it, particularly. You, you still need, I think what's something we have drilled down into is that that aspirational stuff, that, that thing of daring to dream has to exist. Otherwise, football changes so dramatically. You know, if you can't have a situation where a team, you know, you look at Bournemouth and Brighton very nearly going out of business. Yet both, you know, Brighton still in the Premier League, Bournemouth having a, a great run of Premier League stability for a while. These are clubs that, that nearly didn't exist. They were in such dire straits at the bottom of, of the fourth tier. The thing that makes football so supreme compared to other sports around the world is that ability to go up and down, to have aspirations that you can one day be part of the elite. And without it, it just changes beyond all comparison and I, I don't think do, I want Do you feel Steve that every that club has the aspirations to be a Premier League club or is it just the aspirations of a League Two club to get to League One that is in essence stepping into the Premier League for them is that is that is that what you mean it's not necessarily being a Premier League club that's not what we've we're in business for is to ultimately get to the Premier yeah. League it's about stepping up a division it's like Wickham getting to the Championship in essence it's like them getting to the Premier League yeah. because yeah. No one ever saw that happening. So I suppose is that is that we mean it's not about being so, a Premier League yeah. club as being the be all. Why we're in business? Why we employ footballers? Why uh, we have an important role in the community? It's all about getting to the Premier League. It, 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 for a lot of clubs, it's never going to happen. Realistically, it's never going to happen. But that's maybe not what they're actually actively looking to achieve. But they don't all have to have. No, that no, no. So I'm not saying they should do. Absolutely, they shouldn't do. Yeah. But yeah. you you need to have you. Surely we need to live in a footballing world in which somebody can come in, can innovate can invest in the right way, can make good decisions, and that a club can move beyond the level that they are currently at and, and, and dream a bit bigger, because that galvanises everybody associated with the game, everybody with a, a love for that club, in the same way that you need to have a situation in which clubs that are being run badly are punished by relegation. That, it's the yin and yang, it's the, the symbiosis of football if, if we didn't have it, I don't think it would be the great sport that so many people love. But in a word, do you feel the Premier League has a, an obligation to keep League One and League Two clubs alive? Because no, I, I, I say no. 
No, the EFL have that responsibility mm-hmm. and they're not fulfilling that responsibility by any margin at the moment. And they, that there should be an awful lot of inward reflection about that. I want to say yes, but I think in reality, no, they don't. It's not, you, you can't, I think we, too much of the conversation is, not this conversation, the conversation in general, is the, the Premier League should sort this out. I don't think that's, I don't think that's healthy. And I don't think that's, you mean from a moral right. point of view, you're saying, yeah, I, think, I think yes. I think morally, there is an argument that the Premier League, there is so much money in the Premier League that they could give more of it to the lower leagues. I think morally there is, that, that is incumbent on. The moral thing to, for the Premier League to do would be to, to be more generous with their cash. The, and also potentially it might, it might make the, health, the Premier League a slightly more healthy environment because it reduces that kind of endless rush for success and for that grasping, greedy kind of, we need as much money as possible that exists within, within the Premier League. But I, I think we, we, we lose the thread of the debate a little bit when we say that it's their duty it isn't their duty because we have even seen within Premier League clubs look at Arsenal the criticism of Arsenal signing Willian and presumably giving Aubameyang a huge new contract when they're getting rid of I think 55 employees at the club so again do we even find it within the Premier League clubs is that the fans are thinking hold on a minute we're seemingly trying to save money in one area then we're spending lavishly in another is that again does that again show the imbalance in the way that maybe Premier League clubs think about the way they do their own business let alone whether they're thinking about teams in League Two I think I've thought a lot about this, actually, and I think I'm going to write something this week on the kind of the morality of transfer spending in, in this, the COVID summer. Because it, it sits really uneasily with me that, that Arsenal have gone and signed, not just William, but they, you know, they went and spent 30 million quid on, on Gabriel Medaliais. Yeah, Ma- yeah. Gabriel. Okay, yeah, and <laughs> yeah. Gab- yeah, just, just Gabriel. Just Gabriel, yeah, yeah. And you think, well... Like I'm sure I've not, I've not seen a vast amount of him. I'm sure he's a really good player. Lots of clubs after him. I'm sure he's a great signing. Arsenal definitely needed the you know re- reinforcements at centre back. No question. Perfectly perfectly sensible footballing signing. I'd say last season, alongside Jose Font, he was one of Lille's best two central defenders. I can give him no higher praise. <laughs> the um, the 36 year old Jose Font. Maybe they're the wrong the wrong one. But they've also signed William Saliba from Saint Etienne, who's a, a wonderful prospect. And that deal was done. Previously, they signed him last summer and he was effectively on loan at Saint-Étienne this year. But you think, well, hang on, you've, you've just sacked 55 people, including most of your scouting staff. Do, do you need to spend 30 million quid on a central defender? Or could you just accept this year that you maybe wouldn't get to make as much progress as you wanted to because your financial situation has changed? And the, the other thing that's asked, this is now a completely different subject. Maybe we should do this as a podcast next week, but... You look at what, what happened with the Premier League Chinese TV deal, that suddenly is another massive hole in club finances that is going to have to be filled at some point. And you, you look across the board at the Premier League, and it's Tottenham took a £175 million loan from the government, which they're not allowed to spend on, on transfers, but the, the money's all going in exactly the same pot. So I don't quite understand how you differentiate. And they've signed Hoiberg and, and, Do- and Doherty, both good signings, both, you know, exactly the sort of players that will do well at Spurs, the sort of players Spurs were lacking. Doherty, I think, is fantastic. Could you not just have had a slightly worse right-back next year and not spent that money, given that your financial... And I think what it you shows... Serge Aurier, yeah. a slightly well, worse, well, well, worse right-back. Serge Aurier, keep hold of him. Oh, they had a lot worse right-back last year, Rory. I mean, don't punish them again. The, but that will... All right, fair point. But the... Or you keep Carl Walker-Peters, who you already own. You just say, look, actually, do you know, this year, we don't have the money to sign a... If, if, even though, I mean, Doherty's cheap, it's 15 million quid. It's a, re, it's a really good deal for Spurs. But I find that I've found watching these clubs, with a couple of exceptions, spend money, having spent six months partly trying to persuade players to take a pay cut and partly 
taking money from, from other areas, whether it's through the furlough scheme or, or through the government or through sacking staff, and then saying, actually, we, we need to sign this £30 million Brazilian. What I think it illustrates is fo- football clubs' complete inability to think, do you know what, maybe we can't, we can't fulfil our ambitions immediately. Maybe we do have to retrench a little bit. And, you know, Liverpool fans are frustrated that they haven't signed anyone this summer at all. But you kind of think, well, or they signed Simicast having sold Lovren, so it kind of balances. But you think, well, actually, maybe in the circumstances, that, is that not what everyone should be doing? Because you, you've all lost loads of money. You don't know when fans are coming back. You've just lost a massive TV contract. There might be a second wave. Maybe now is not the summer to be going and spending a load of money on, on footballers. Maybe just accept that this summer, you don't actually spend a lot of money and you just try and get improve what you've got. Or this summer, you coach players to be better. <laughs> it's just a thought. Um, that, that, that perhaps is, is, is the, the beginning of, a, of another subject that we will that we'll have a, a conversation about, certainly before the end of the transfer window, which, of, of course, um, is uh, what, October the 5th, isn't it, for, for the Premier League? Uh, so we'll have that conversation a little bit later, Chinch. So I know I've been slightly under par today, but I've just provided, again, talking about Arsenal, I've provided content for another podcast. Yeah, I know I don't do. really, you know, I, I don't really pull my weight on this podcast, but I have there, I have given you, free of charge, another podcast to do just you to don't... keep this massive footballing ball rolling chins you don't have to pull your weight because what you provide is stardust so what we what we what have I, list... I provide is nonsense i've gone from the fighting temeraire to providing <laughs> podcast content just sums me up beautifully a bit like Nikki in your house, we do the heavy lifting, Chinch. <laughs> you, you, you do do the heavy lifting, yes. I'm just, I'm just yes. slightly concerned because Rory said we're going to do something next week and I just lost track of it and I think he's suggested that we've got a week to turn Serge Aurier into a good right back. Uh, you simply cannot do that. The best coach in... He is, he is a very poor... He is a poor right back. And like all stardust, Chinch, just a sprinkling, never a pouring... And it's that's like sprinkling cinnamon on a, on, a, on a good quality coffee, isn't it? Uh, so, yes, uh, hang fire, everybody. Hot takes can, uh, can be saved on that particular subject as we continue onwards into the abyss that Chinch is currently staring into. So, it is that time of year when, for all apart from Andy Hinchcliffe, uh, when enthusiasm for all your real and vicarious sporting pursuits is at its most unspoiled. But... Really, while you might be a fan hoping for big things from your team or an exciting signing, is there anything more motivating than the possibility of coming in the top 300 or so of the mighty set-piece menu Premier League Predictions League? Those of you new to this exalted game will soon be among the throng dedicating at least eight to ten minutes of your season to throwing your hat into the SPM PLPL ring. It is a format that relies on next to no work for everybody, apart from the mysterious but talented best man Billy, who has myriad spreadsheets empty now and ready to be filled by you. This is how it works. Each year, we ask you to predict the final Premier League table. And that's it, really. Well, that's it on the BBC Sport website. Ours is much, much more. You pick the final positions of all 20 teams. So the closer you are to their finishing place, the more points you get in the eventual reckoning. And what a reckoning it was to be for Andy Hinchcliffe last season, who, were it not for the fact that we added in new rules, would have been the overall champion out of more than 600 entries. If there is ever something to take Chinch even further down into his pit of despair. So in an effort to prove that we didn't do that just to stop Chinch, we have simplified 
those rules. Thank you, <laughs> you will receive 20 points for being spot on, all the way down to one, if you predict that the team that finishes bottom actually finishes top. An unlikely thing, you may well think. There are two ways to win a bonus five points. The, uh, these are the only bonuses. If you get all four of the top four in the right order, if you get the bottom three in the right order as well. Five points available for each of those two. The tiebreaker is how many positions you get exactly right, or one-off, if that's the same, etc., etc. It is the new and also old, stripped back, unvarnished SPM PLPL. It's classic Coke. <laughs> Where's the wild card gone? Has that been ditched then? Yes, Chinch, that was the that's part. What cost me, that's what cost me my victory. And now for this season, you ditched it. Yep. Yeah. It served that, its purpose. That's, <laughs> yep. that's, there's a conspiracy here. It's run its course. I just know that this, this time around, I'm going to be awful. Where if that hadn't applied last time, I would have won. So I think it's wrong that the wild card should still be in this season. Have a word with Billy. I think it should still be in there. Why, why have you taken it out? We've taken it out because it was really confusing. Nobody understood it and it prevented you from winning. And Chinch, those three things are all equally important. And to be honest with you, even though you didn't win, the amount of times that we talked about you winning instead of the actual winner, I think it goes to okay. show that you did well enough. All you have to do to enter the SPM PLPL is head to tinyurl.com forward slash setpiece menu. It is the same web address and make your predictions. It is very simple. I promise change you have until the end of transfer deadline day in england so yes that, that that is indeed the 5th of october to settle upon your order and you can change it as many times as you like between now and then but after then not at all head to tinyurl.com forward slash set piece menu and follow the instructions they're very simple chinch i just wonder given your recent prowess do you have any tips for any new players of the spm plpl uh no because i don't want to give any of my secrets away but one, one thing I want to, I will give you, Leeds, top 10. Oh, but Leeds. Top 10, Chinch? Yes. They're Leeds. Everton Cup contenders, aren't they? Leeds, top 10, Steve, Rory, Hugh. Just, just leave it at that. There's no, don't try and talk me down from it. Look at, my, look at where we finished last season. I'm trying to talk you up, Chinch. Hang on, hang on, I'm hang on. To get look at where we finished last table. season. When I talk, when I talk, you should say, I'm going to write that down because that is vitally important because he finished way above me last season. <laughs> Leeds are the great big um, for the, from an SPM PLPL perspective. Leeds are the great big question mark. Like where do you, where do you put Leeds as the big issue? It's not a big question mark. It's top ten. Top ten for Chinch. Absolutely. And he is the expert. Well, uh, seemingly yes. Well, you got Sheffield United right last uh, year, pretty much spot on, didn't you? So um... I got a lot right last season. To be fair. In fact, if you, you did choose Sheffield United as your wild card, and had you got that right, even though you were mm. just a couple off, you might have won the whole thing. Uh, so tinyurl.com forward slash set piece menu, menu. Where are you going to put leads is the big question. Keep your correspondence in the meanwhile coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Rory, Andy, and Stephen, and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Can I make a prediction? Uh, I think leads will win at Anfield. On the opening day. On the opening day. That is a good shout. I think the, the fact that it's been a ridiculous... It, the pre-season's been so ridiculous that I didn't realise until now when we're recording that England were playing on Tuesday night. That it's been so chaotic. I, I suspect... I, I think Leeds will go to Anfield and win. Not just draw, win. Because no, pe people are saying, oh, this is a tough game for Leeds. I think I've gone on record saying this is a tough game for Liverpool. It's a tough game for... You are on record saying that, Chinch, famously. When you, say, when you say England are playing, I wouldn't describe their current style of football as we playing. It's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. They look What's good. Your... They look good. They run around. It looks like they're going to get somewhere. 
and then they don't. What's been your favourite moment of football from the last week, Jinch? I'm trying to think whether anyone got a ball kicked in their face. Uh, no, I've not been tactically blown away by anything. Are you saying that your favourite moment what, of football? No, what, what did impress me was Memphis Depay's tattoos. Okay. Tremendous. I got a little bit, I kind of got a bit fixated on his tattoos and forgot to watch where the ball was. But he's very, he must oil himself down because he's, he has his socks slightly down so he can show off his big calves, his big Jack Grealish calves. And he's got lovely, lovely legs, but he's tattooed everywhere. And he, he looks tremendous. And he's a good player, by the way, but his tattoos and the silkiness of his skin, that's been a, a true highlight for me. The football, the rest, the actual football, rubbish.